Coming up on Tech Nation, Pomona College professor Gary Smith talks about how we humans are the intelligent ones and not the computers. He de-hypes our expectations of artificial intelligence and the capabilities of computers while refocusing us on the extraordinary abilities of humans. He's here today with the AI delusion. Then on Tech Nation Health, we look at the global biotech industry, its accomplishments, and its challenges. Jim Greenwood, the president and CEO of Bio, covers everything from scientific breakthroughs to plentiful jobs for the non-scientists among us. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. There Ought to Be a Law was a cartoon that ran from 1948 to 1984, and I remember it as a kid. Reading the comics page was a frequent occurrence on a Sunday morning, and while I was more likely to fixate on Prince Valiant and take a run at Blondie, there ought to be a law always bothered me. I just didn't get it. I understand now that the cartoon was for adults who were, unbeknownst to me, solidly immersed in the frustrations of life. And I also remember we might find ourselves in an unforeseen situation where they would be reading the paper and look up and say to the room in general, you know, there ought to be a law. That sensibility is apparently core to our experience because it persists to this day. It's not unusual for someone to pronounce to anyone in earshot, you know, there ought to be a law that they can't or you can't, somebody should or shouldn't, but what's new may be the target of annoyance. For one thing, those things called chatbots or software robots or just bots automatically sending out tweets and posts and emails and digital invites and other directed debris of social media. It doesn't seem right that you don't know if a human sent it out or a chatbot did, and who would blame you if you think there ought to be a law about that? The good news is, now there is. California Governor Jerry Brown has signed into law Bill SB 1001. It was introduced by State Senator Bob Hertzberg from Van Nuys. You see, he was bothered by the Russian efforts to spread misimpressions and misinformation online using these bots, and by the bot-created social media deluge after the Parkland shooting. He sees it as fraud, plain and simple. Do you have the right to know whether the communicator is human or just someone giving you the impression of being human? Or was it a machine? And even more to the point, was the human you thought you were talking to someone else altogether? Someone you might choose never to listen to or maybe listen, but take with a grain of salt. Well, you can't arrest a chatbot, but you can arrest the person behind it. And while California can't make something illegal outside of California borders, it can be very specific about what you do to Californians, wherever you happen to be. 
now you can't use a bot to communicate with someone in California to sell a product or a service. And this is a very important part. And you can't use a bot to communicate with someone in California to influence a vote in an election. At the same time, if you're human and you are who you say you are, have at it. But if you are a chatbot, you got to identify yourself at the very start. I would say that's throwing cold water. And that's the point. There are problems enforcing this, that's for sure. But this is a start and something that our legislators can start working on. And why not earlier, you might ask? Let's face it. We have to start using and then abusing technology to shape what a reasonable law ought to be. What's really got me excited here, beyond the law itself, is this. Senator Hertzberg isn't done. Now he's got his eye fixed on automated spam telephone calls. I say, go, Bob, go. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Technation, I speak with Gary Smith about our beliefs about the capabilities of artificial intelligence. He's here today with the AI delusion. Then on Technation Health, we look across the biotech industry and especially biopharmaceuticals. Jim Greenwood, the president and CEO of Bio, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, gives us an overview. Now there are three good answers to who or what is Ada. The first is the famous Ada, Countess of Lovelace, daughter of the poet Byron, and a mathematician famous for her contributions to Babbage's analytical engine. Second, it's the computer programming language Ada, named after her. And now we learn there is a third Ada. Gary Smith is the Fletcher Jones Professor of Economics at Pomona College. The story starts actually when the first time Hillary Clinton ran for president and she had all the resources and all the name and all the money and, and the campaign apparatus. And then this unknown person or barely known person with the unhelpful name named Barack Obama came along and, of course, uh, defeated her soundly and then won the presidency soundly. And one of the things he had going for him was big data and that he'd compiled this big database of virtually every registered voter in the country, and he had profiled them, you know, what issues were ones to push and what issues to avoid and where to advertise, where not to advertise. And so when Brock's eight years were up, uh, Hillary said, I'm going to run again, and I'm not going to let big data beat me. I'm going to use big data this time. But it, it was kind of a secret because 
you know, one of her reputations is being carefully scripted and managed. And so she didn't want to come out as I'm doing what the computer tells me to do. And so it was a secret computer program that very few people knew about. And she relied on it for virtually all of her advertising and for a large amount of deployment of resources in various states and so on. And it went terribly awry. Don't go to Michigan. Is, don't go to Wisconsin. Did yeah, it actually say and, that? <laughs> it did. Well, it didn't, computers don't say things, but, but the computer printout was saying. Uh, Never mentioned those two went, states in actions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's go to Arizona and then we can get a landslide. <laughs> and meanwhile, real people, you know, the people who are on the ground in uh, Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota are saying, you're in trouble. You need to do something. And it was obvious that for humans. You go to the campaign rallies and uh, Hillary would give a, a presentation and it'd be mild applause or slightly enthusiastic applause. And then uh, Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump would give speeches and 20,000 people would show up and go nuts. And But how do you put that into a computer? And uh, there's a saying, you know, not everything that you can count actually counts. And uh, things that can't be counted sometimes do count. And the computers can't actually count enthusiasm. And so they, they largely ignored that. And meanwhile, her husband, Bill Clinton, of course, the greatest campaigner any of us have ever seen. And he won on the, on the issue. Uh, it's all about the job, stupid. <laughs> and he could tell that that's what was, was carrying Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump was the enthusiasm and the fears and the worries of people about the economy and their jobs. And Clinton, meanwhile, Hillary Clinton, meanwhile, was saying you know, her, her basic campaign message was, uh, hey, I'm not perfect, but Sanders is worse than me or Trump is worse than me. And <laughs> Which sort of sounds of computery. You know, we're going to show you what the, what the uh, various things are in relation to each other, you know, but yeah. uh, nobody ever stood up and applauded a computer uh, just for running a program, you know. So, uh, exactly. So uh, you have it there. So it was sort of a cute thing that they called this program Ada, don't you think? It was. It was supposed to be the big reveal when she got won the election, what my secret weapon was uh, Ada and uh, a female name for a female computer program. and. Did it have different data than Obama or different algorithms? I think it was the same data, but it did things like it used historical data on tendencies for people to vote and places like Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota reliably went Democratic, so we don't need to worry about them. And it didn't even do polling in those states. And because the computer thought we always win those states, so why bother? Why worry about them? Let's worry about fringe states like Arizona. <laughs> Afterwards, uh, seasoned veterans said it, it was political malpractice that they didn't spend resources on the states they had to win to win the election. You look at the electoral map and you look on the ground at people saying uh, voters are not enthusiastic about showing up to vote for the Democratic Party. And they were right. And the computer was wrong. I learned the word micro target while I was reading yes. that. What's a micro target versus just well, a that, that target? Was, it goes into a lot of things. It started actually with a business, but it was also part of the uh, Obama campaign and then the Clinton campaign is to look at specific, as, as opposed to having a big, broad, one message for everybody, you have one message that's tailored to what we think you will be responsive to. And so if you're a person for whom gun control is really important, we'll send you mailers about gun control. <laughs> and in the business world, it is, if you're the kind of person who wants to buy uh, electronic toys we'll send you coupons for electronic toys or we'll send you email messages about electronic toys because we figured out everything there is to know about you. In fact, we know you better than you know yourself. Like Tim Cook said the other day, the data industrial complex that computers nowadays think they know more about us than we know about ourselves. 
And given that, we can micro-target somebody. You get one email selling you something, and I get another email selling me something because they've decided that we are we have different tastes and preferences. Well, you know, I have to say, the reason I'm laughing is the first time I noticed this was years ago when Amazon said, instead of watching your your particular buying habits, started out by saying, you know, are there you know, kind of genres that you're interested in. And I just picked one, you know, off the list and said science <laughs> fiction. And I don't read right. science fiction. I will sometimes in the interest of this show and our audience if uh, if it's important. But I have no interest in that. It took like five years before they st- stopped sending me suggestions about I, what I, science I, fiction I, book I should read. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I get stuff all the time. And I, it's kind of embarrassing. It's like you watch a television show and there's uh ads for malpractice lawyers and you think <laughs> what target demographic am i in what you know am i watching the wrong kind of tv show and the same thing i get these email ads and i'm like oh my god why did they think i'd be interested in this and what did i do what did i do wrong what did i do wrong? yeah yeah who's been in my house watching television <laughs> or using my computer i just want to know yeah. this a lot of it's not who you watch it's like how old you are what your race is what your gender is what you majored in in college and what kind of job you have and that correlates statistically with you being fitting into this little niche. And so we're going to micro-target you, even though we're all individuals and we don't all fit stereotypes. Well, if you're doing anything here, you're decloaking, as we would say in Star Trek, you're decloaking big data as well as computers. I mean, in your words, the computer's seeming intelligence is just an illusion. Now tell us, yeah. what does that mean? Well, like you say, it's it's the buzzword. And so in 2017, it was the National Marketing Association's marketing word of the year was AI, artificial intelligence. And so, and it's, it's easy to fall for it because, you know, you ask a computer, find the square root of any number and it can instantly, or the capital of any country, or no matter where you are, the direction to the nearest Starbucks, or put the best humanity has to offer up against a computer and backgammon, checkers, chess, go, and we lose. And so it's, it's easy to think, wow. Computers are so good at such superhuman things. They must be good at everything. They must be smarter than us at everything. And the illusion part is that computers don't actually have anything resembling human comprehension of what they're doing. They don't have common sense. They don't have wisdom. They know nothing about the world. They have no mental agility. They don't have critical thinking skills. And so it's a simple task like this, a simple question. Is it safe to walk downstairs backwards if I close my eyes? And we know the answer to that, but, but computers don't because so. they, don't, they, they don't know what any of the words in that sentence mean. And they're, they're like uh, Nigel Richards, who's this uh, New Zealander, who's the greatest Scrabble player of all time. And uh, his greatest feat, though, is he's won the French language Scrabble championship twice, even though he doesn't understand a word of French. And that's the way computers are. And they can manipulate data, manipulate pixels and process them and come up with some kind of recommendation or conclusion, like a square root. But they have no idea what they're doing. And so you ask it a simple question like walking downstairs backwards with your eyes closed, and it has no answer because it doesn't know what any of the words mean. Let's just go a little further into what Nigel did so people get that he could win the Scrabble Championship in France and not know a word of French beyond bonjour. Well, for Nigel, Scrabble is, and for many Scrabble players, it's just a mathematical puzzle. You've got these little tiles, and they have letters on them, <laughs> and they have numbers. And you put the letters together so they appear in the French uh, official Scrabble dictionary, and then you get points for it. And you don't have to actually know what what the letters put together in a a thing mean. You just need to know that these five letters are in the dictionary, 
and they'll give me 23 points. And it's the same way with uh, computers can look at a word and they can spell check it in a dictionary, whatever language you're looking at, or they can look in a different language and figure out what the equivalent is in some other language, or they can count the number of times it's used, or they can go through a bunch of medical papers or legal papers and see how often the word pops up. But like Nigel Richards, they have no idea, no understanding at all of what the words mean. Another example is uh, Terry Winograd up at uh, Stanford University, a CS professor. And he invented these things called the Winograd Schema Challenge. And here's an example. What does it refer to in this sentence? You can't cut that tree down with that axe because it is too thick. And we immediately know it's the tree that's thick. But computers can't answer those. They can do no better than guessing, than flipping a coin, guessing what the answer is. And there's Ornazioni, who's a uh, professor at Washington University and also University of Washington, and also head of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, has quipped, how can computers take over the world when they don't even know what it refers to in a sentence? And that's exactly right, because they don't know what an axe is, what a tree is, what cut down means. They don't have any knowledge of the world the way humans do. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Gary Smith. He's the Fletcher Jones Professor of Economics at Pomona College. Dr. Smith has written or co-authored over 80 academic papers and 12 books, including Standard Deviations, Flawed Assumptions, Tortured Data, and Other Ways to Lie with Statistics. He's here today with the AI Delusion. Well, this is really interesting to me because some parts of your book sound like a, read like a rather, uh, an economics professor. I mean, it's understandable. <laughs> which I am. <laughs> which you are. So, you know, full full disclosure here. And then other yeah. parts are just hysterical. You're saying, hey, take a look at this. Like an everyday person. <laughs> Can you believe this? <laughs> well, I'm that too. I'm also an everyday person. So how is it different writing a book like this versus all those academic papers? To some extent, it's actually based on the academic papers. And so I'm an, I'm an econ professor, but I've written on all sorts of things and medicine, law, and environment and things. And I, I come across these things, and a lot of them involve what's called data mining, which is you take a bunch of data and you ransack it looking for patterns and correlations unencumbered by any kind of theory or common sense or wisdom. And you find a pattern and you say, well, look, I found something important. And when I was young, starting out as an economist, data mining was considered a, uh, <laughs> a serious flaw. It was akin to plagiarism, to ransack data looking for correlations without any idea of what you're looking for. Because you can always find correlations even in random data, even in coin flips, you can find correlations. And so finding a correlation just proves you looked, nothing more. And nowadays, of course, data mining has become the norm. And a lot of these papers I've written are debunking crazy theories that people have, have put out there based on data mining or torturing data. And what led me into the computer part, not only am I interested in computers, and I use computers all the time for everything, you know, for mathematical calculations, statistical calculations, Monte Carlo simulations. Not only that, but the computers are really, really good at data mining, at finding correlations. But they have no idea whether the correlations they find make any sense because, like we were talking before, they don't know what the words mean. And so if they find a correlation between the daily values of the S&P 500 and the high temperature in Curtin, Australia, they have no idea whether that's sensible or senseless. 
because they don't know what any of those words mean. So in a sense, the larger the database, the larger the big data, and the more parameters it has, and you just keep comparing one parameter to another, the likelihood is that you're going to come up with something that scores significantly statistically. Did I really say exactly. those, those two S words in a row? Significantly. <laughs> that, that, those, are, those are hard ones. Statistically. I, should, I can't even think what to replace them with. But that's what you're looking for is statistical yeah. significance, you know. And so, and so, so it's so, just going to be so many monkeys in a room might write a book, you know. So yeah, Exactly. When I was uh, teaching at Yale, one of my mentors and colleagues, James Tobin, a Nobel laureate, used to say that the bad old days before computers, it was actually a blessing because the calculations were so hard you had to think before you calculated because you didn't want to waste your time on calculations that led nowhere. And nowadays, computers are so fast and the data is so big, it's really easy to calculate before thinking. And that's the problem because, as you said, the more data you look at, the more certain it is that the patterns you find will be, be coincidental, transitory, and useless. And as that young Yale professor, is it not true, <laughs> Dr. Smith, that you yeah. generated a huge amount of ran random numbers, just we random number generators on computers, yeah. all yeah. of that, and then you proved it by going through and finding significance between the numbers you just made up. Is that yeah. true? That was you? Yeah, I never, I never you didn't did have, my, You my, didn't have tenure yet, did you? Yeah, I didn't do that in my professional practice. But, uh, <laughs> I've, I've done it recently in order to demonstrate you know, convincingly in very simple terms, I make up random numbers and I can find a 0.9 correlation between my random numbers and the stock market. And just to demonstrate that finding a correlation, you know, proves nothing. We say over and over and over again, correlation is not causation. But then you get these people who, oh, it's a big, it's a 0.9 correlation. It must be real. And it's, it's, it's frustrating. It's also kind of scary. Now, big data has currently evolved into a big black box. Yep. What's big? What's just a database <laughs> and what's big data? I mean, do we know? Well, there's there's no specific definition of big data. It's just a lot of data. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. <laughs> there's a no lot, big lot, data police. <laughs> and, and, and so like we said, the uh, you let loose a, an algorithm for finding patterns of correlations and the bigger the data, the more likely you are to find something. And then a human, if they didn't trust computers so much, and they could step back and say, wait a minute, that's nonsense. Temperatures in Curtin, Australia, and the S&P 500, that's just bogus. Although some humans say, well, if a computer found it, it must be true. But then you put the thing inside a black box, and what the black box means is that nobody knows what's going inside that, going on inside the computer. There's some deep neural network or some advanced statistical methodology going on in there and it comes up with some i'm able to you should buy apple stock or you should sell ibm stock and you have no idea why it said that or it says you applied for a job and you should be hired or you should be rejected or you apply for a loan you should be granted or rejected you apply for parole it should be given or rejected and it's inside the black box we have no idea why the computer came to that that conclusion and it, it could be totally random nonsense, but we, <laughs> we're just not in a position to judge because we don't know what's inside there. Now that we've uh, decloaked big data from just <laughs> lots of data, uh, let's get to artificial intelligence. What is artificial intelligence, um, and where is the line between that and just old-fashioned, hard hardcore analytical programming? 
Yeah, it's it's been evolving. The definition it's one of those things that's it's like pornography, you know. I, I can't define it, but I but I but but I know it when I see it. Justice wow. Stewart, I think said Justice Stewart, I think said that that I we can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And artificial intelligence, you know, some things like tightening the bolts, or you go to an ATM and you ask for two hundred bucks and it gives you back two hundred bucks, or you put a check in and it reads your check and credits you with a deposit. I mean, that could count as AI, and it used to. But now it's like, oh, that's so mundane. That's not AI. And so we're like raising the bar for what what constitutes genuine artificial intelligence. And everything computers do nowadays that that is counted as artificial intelligence is, in fact, a very narrowly defined and brittle kind of intelligence. It doesn't generalize. And so they can beat the best the humans have to offer in Go. But if you were to change the dimensions of the board like add one extra row or one extra column or one of each, it would be absolutely lost because it doesn't understand why it makes the moves it makes in order to win go on a standard board. And so you give it a non-standard board and it, it would, it would, it'd be, it would just make moves at random essentially. Whereas a human who understands what the principles are of go can still make good moves and still play, play expertly. And so it's, it's that kind of mental flexibility to go outside a very narrow task and to apply that knowledge, which humans can, to something that is a little bit different or very different is, is what's lacking. It's, it's called general intelligence as opposed to uh, narrowly defined artificial intelligence. One thing I came away with was not just an appreciation for AI and big data and computers. I came away with an appreciation for what it means to be humans. I mean, we operate differently from computers. I'm just going to quote from your book here. We separate things into their skeletal essence. What does that mean? Well, that comes from Douglas Hofstadter, who uh, wrote uh, a great book when he was in his 30s, Goodell, Escher, and Bach, and he got a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Award. And he spent his life, after that he was set up for life, and he got a job at the University of Indiana. That's where he's been for several years now. And he's in several departments, although he doesn't teach any courses. <laughs> he just I like works this with job. graduates. <laughs> yeah, I love that job. <laughs> if I could write a book like he wrote. And he's been working with students trying to figure out how to write a computer algorithm that does what the human brain does. And it's, it's very, very, very difficult. What the profession did was go off in a different direction with, let's do something useful we can make money on, like search engines and spell checkers and stuff like that. And his current thinking, is, as I understand it, talking to him, is what humans do is they separate things into their skeletal essence. And so in the book, there's a picture, very simple picture of a wagon. And there's just a rectangle, and there's two circles, and there's a stick coming or a line coming out, and some text on the side. And we humans, we look at that, and those circles, they could be pies or bowling balls or frisbees. But from where they're placed, we know that it's probably the wheels on a wagon. And we know there's probably two wheels on the other side. <laughs> we know there's probably a hole in the, in the rectangle where you could put kittens or toys or things like that. We know that if you climb into the wagon on the top of a hill, it's may, it may likely roll downhill and you may be in danger or have fun, stuff like that. We know all that. And the other thing that, that Hofstetter says is we form these opinions by analogy. And so when we're very, very young, we see something and it's got the box and the wheels and the handle and we're told it's a wagon. And then we see something which has a box, a wheel, a wheels, and a handle, and we're told it's a wagon, 
And so it reinforces in our mind what a wagon is. Pomona College professor Gary Smith is the author of The AI Delusion. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, a look at the global biotech industry. Joining me is Jim Greenwood, the president and CEO of Bio, the biotechnology innovation organization. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Gary Smith, the Fletcher Jones Professor of Economics at Pomona College. You may remember his book, Standard Deviations, Flawed Assumptions, Tortured Data, and Other Ways to Lie with Statistics. He's here today with the AI delusion. We know there's probably two wheels on the other side. (laughs) We know there's probably a hole in in the rectangle where you could put kittens or toys or things like that. We know that if you climb into the wagon on the top of a hill, it's may, it may likely roll downhill and you may be in danger or have fun and stuff like that. We know all that. And the other thing that, that Hofstetter says is we form these opinions by analogy. And so when we're very, very young, we see something and it's got the box and the wheels and the handle and we're told it's a wagon. And then we see something which has a box of wheels and a handle, and we're told it's a wagon, and so it reinforces in our mind what a wagon is. And then we see something which is bigger and has doors, and that's apparently another category, car. And then we see something which has wheels that roll, we climb on top, we form another category, bicycle. (laughs) And every time we see bicycle, it reinforces what a bicycle is and how it's different from a wagon and different from a car. And computers do none of that. Computers don't think by analogy, and they don't look at the skeletal essence, the box and the wheels and the handle. What they look at is pixels. And they, they train not just on two or three wagons, but on millions of pictures of wagons, horses, houses, clouds, trees. And then when, when they see something, quote-unquote, they, they look at the pixels, and they look at the mathematical representations inside the algorithm, 
and they try to find some close match in the pixels. And sometimes they're brilliant, and sometimes it's, it's ridiculous. Like in the wagon example, I gave it to one deep neural network, state-of-the-art algorithm, and it came back and said it was a business. And then I gave it to, <laughs> after, the book, after the book was published, I gave it to Wolfram's deep neural network. It came back and said it was a badminton racket. And somehow the mass confusion of, mass, of trying to match pixels led it off to these preposterous conclusions. And humans, we don't match pixels. We don't see things by matching pixels. We see what we described as a skeletal essence, which is wagons have these components, cars have these components, buses have these components. Another good example is, I think it was Cornell, but Cornell and Wyoming, I think, they showed a deep neural network, a series of horizontal black and yellow lines. And the deep neural network said it was a school bus. And somehow in the pixel matching, the black and yellow showed up as reminiscent of school buses. But humans, we know what the essence of a school bus is. <laughs> it's got wheels, it's got a door, it's got windows, it has a rectangular shape. And that's how humans perceive the world. And people writing uh, artificial intelligence algorithms nowadays don't, don't try and do that. They try to avoid seeing the world the way humans do because that's just too hard a task. And it's much easier to look at pixels or letters or individual data points and come up with something that's useful and profitable. I love deep neural networks. It's like deep yeah. learning, deep this. <laughs> deep is the new super. Deep is the new AI. It's like yeah. your next book could be The Deep Delusion. It could be. Yeah, it's, it it's, could be. <laughs> and of course, the company that developed the Go program, they call themselves Deep Mind. <laughs> yeah, there you go. As opposed to humans, which seem to have shallow minds. And of course, it's exactly the opposite. The knowledge that computers have is very shallow and superficial. And the knowledge humans have, because we, we actually know what the world is. We know what things are. We know what things mean. We know how things are related. We can make plans. We can carry out our plans. And it, that, that, is, that is deep intelligence. Well, it's not just Hillary Clinton who was depending on computers and computer programs and data to make decisions. In some cases, there are programs that are making very serious decisions. And uh, I was thinking about that uh, 1983 uh, example you gave of the Soviet early warning missile detection system. Let's talk about that as a singular example of, of technology gone awry. Well, of course, that was that was the uh, Cold War period, and the Soviet Union and the United States were deeply distrustful of each other and uh, thought that the other might launch some kind of preemptive strike to destroy the other country. And so they set up these uh, early detection systems that were supposed to tell when, computer, when, when rockets were on the way. And if it had been a, a Dr. Strangelove scenario, it would have been locked in that humans could not overturn the computer and once the computer thought it saw a missile heading its way, say towards the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union would immediately launch a massive airstrike against the United States. And it was supposed to be, it was called Mutually Assured Destruction, MAD, a great acronym. <laughs> it's, like, it's like deep. Hmm. <laughs> and, and so when, once you locked it in the computers, you, the Soviet Union could say to the United States, look, we're not kidding. You launch a missile and we're not going to change our mind because we, don't, we can't change our mind. The computers are going to fire. And then, of course vice versa the other way around. And so that was supposed to deter any kind of foolishness was the fact that there would be an automatic, uncontrolled response. And so the Soviet Union had this, uh, had this uh, detection system up, and it thought it saw missiles coming towards the Soviet Union. 
And of course, the retaliatory response was what was called for. But luckily, it wasn't launched into the, it wasn't locked into the computer. There was a Soviet, I think it was a general, might have been a lieutenant, who was sort of keeping an eye on things. And he scratched his head for a little bit and said, I think I'll wait a little bit and see what happens. And luckily he waited because <laughs> it turned out that all it was was some odd reflection of uh, off the clouds, light reflect, sunlight reflecting off clouds. And somehow the computer didn't recognize it as such, you know, matching patterns, matching pixels. It, it thought it was a rocket when it was, in fact, just sunlight on clouds. And so luckily we were spared mutually assured destruction. <laughs> You know, it, what's what's so uh, important to me about that s- story is that he wasn't given information that he could see analytically. He just said, right. let me, this is, I got no reason to believe this could right. be bad, you know. <laughs> I'm sure he was thinking, the Americans aren't that stupid. They're not going to launch a strike. <laughs> and so let me just wait a minute and, and see if I get more, more evidence of what's going on. And at some point, the computer changed his mind and said, there's no rocket in the sky anymore. And then they figured out what it was that the computer had misinterpreted as a rocket. But he was using common sense, which is when you're in two, two countries which have arsenals capable of destroying each other, who would be stupid enough to launch, a, launch an attack like that? Send one missile <laughs> and get 100 back in return. Meanwhile, back at home, <laughs> and more recently, uh, closer to us is the stock market. Now, I don't usually talk about the stock market, but those darn super smart software programs uh, are like having a whole other separate player in the stock market. And they left it in, they've left it in disarray from time to time. So let's talk about that. The thing about the stock market is there's, how do you make money in the stock market? And you buy before prices go up and you sell before they go down. And so all we got to do is predict whether they're going up or down. And so it, it sounds simple, but it's actually extremely difficult. And that's why the average person doesn't make money in the stock market because it's so hard to predict. But it doesn't stop people from trying. And so there are these people called technical analysts who they do price charts or whatever, and they try and figure out some way of predicting stock prices. And it used to be done by hand, and it was hard work, and it didn't work. <laughs> And, and nowadays, with computers, it's not hard at all. It's easy for computers to data mine stock prices and other data and come up with all sorts of crazy predictions. Not, not, cra- not crazy, in the, well, crazy in the sense that they're not based on anything that's realistic. And so there was a guy who came up with, he could predict stock prices, Dow Jones Industrial Average, by looking at the words used on uh, Twitter. And <laughs> what he'd done was he looked at a whole bunch of words and he let loose some data mining algorithm, and it found words that fit into certain categories, words that he classified as calm, which were good predictors of stock prices. And it was just utter nonsense. But, but his faith in computers was so great that he put it out there as a, as a research paper, and it got published. It got publicity, of course, all over the world because people are trying to figure out how to beat the stock market. But the telling thing is, is uh, he didn't actually use it to buy and sell stock. It was just a, another research paper to get tenure. There you go. You got to count the papers. <laughs> got to count the papers. Yep. Yep. Fame and funding. Yep. Fame and funding. And then there was the flash crash in uh, yep. 2010. How did that work? And so, well, there were these people who, and they boasted about it. Computers are smarter than us, and so we just turn it over to black box algorithms, and we don't know why they buy or sell, but <laughs> we're mere humans, and. If computers can beat us at Go and chess and checkers, then surely they can do better than us at picking stocks. And so, and, they were, and there were several companies that had these, these AI algorithms set up to buy and sell stocks based on who knew what. 
And then uh, one day, all of a sudden, all heck broke loose, and for no reason. And they still don't know why, why, the, why the computers were triggered, because they were inside this uh, black box. And uh, prices started collapsing. And, uh, computer, and these, these computer algorithms, they don't like to buy stocks like Warren Buffett and hold it for 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. They like to hold it for two seconds or one second or three nanoseconds. And so they started feverishly trading stocks back and forth amongst themselves. And the price went down. Okay, I'm going to sell. Price went down. Okay, I'm going to sell. Okay, price went down. I'm going to sell. And it, it just kept going. And prices dropped by uh, a, a frightening amount. And, and stocks were bought and sold for crazy prices. I can't remember the exact ones, but Apple was either for $100,000 or for a penny. And there are other stocks where it was the reverse, where they were being bought and sold for prices that made no sense whatsoever. And it was because the computer algorithms had no idea whether one cent or 100000 is a reasonable price to pay for these stocks. And so they just kept trading among themselves. And then finally the New York Stock Exchange called a timeout. I think it was a five-second timeout. And the computers went back to normal. And prices recovered. Five seconds. And, all it took. Yep. <laughs> That's all it Go took. Go in the corner for five seconds. Right. Yep. <laughs> Pretty funny. Pretty funny. Well, well, you know, it's just it. It's like if you haven't figured out the rules or the formula or whatever to put into the program th- that would stop such a thing, it won't stop. It can yep. only do yep. what you programmed into it. That's right. And if you if the programmers haven't thought of every possible contingency, something could go terribly wrong. And it, it's not just stocks. It's, like you said before, job applications, loan applications, uh, sending missiles towards Russia <laughs> or, and vice versa. Things could go terribly wrong if you haven't put every contingency into your program or if the computer hasn't figured out every contingency on its own. Well, you said it earlier. You're addicted to computers and you write that in your conclusion. Uh, you're addicted to computers, you know, after bashing all these computers. <laughs> um, now, how, in what ways are you addicted to computers? Well, well I, use, I, I was a math major in college and before I went to econ graduate school. And I used computers in 80-plus you know, papers and now working on my 13th book. I use computers in every single one of them. And it's not word processing. It's, it's calculating things like square roots of, of odd numbers. But it's, it's much more complicated than that. But it, it's things I couldn't do on my own or doing statistical calculations, trying to find, to test a theory. I work in the scientific way, which is theory first, data later. And so I have some theory, and I want to go out to get some data and test the theory. And the calculations are extremely complex, and I, I couldn't do them on my own. And then the third way is what's called Monte Carlo simulations, where you set up some model of an uncertain world, and you use random numbers to generate outcomes, and then you see what those outcomes look like. And again, I, I couldn't do it without a computer. There's one of the examples of the book where I look at 100 different variables, and I pick the five best for predicting this, the S&P 500 daily values in 2015. And I had to estimate 75 million equations, each of which would take me better part of a day <laughs> if I were to do it by hand. And with a computer, I could do it in less than a day, 75 million of them. And what it, what it demonstrated was what I mentioned before, which is, I could find five random numbers that could predict the S&P 500 with a 0.9 correlation in 2015. But of course, it was all nonsense. And so when I used them to predict the S&P 500 in 2016, the correlation was negative 0.6. It was, it was negatively related. It, was, it, was, it did the opposite. And so those kinds of calculations, I just could not do without computers. And uh, 
pretty much all the work I do, as I say, it's it's very labor intensive, very very number intensive, very data intensive, and computers are extremely extremely useful. I was going to say a better word for computers is useful, not intelligent. And computers are extremely useful, but they have nowhere near any anything resembling remotely human intelligence. Well, if you want your computers to give you the right number, you better start speaking more highly of them. Is all I, I have to say. There's <laughs> a little recommendation from the engineer here. Yeah. They hear you. I don't know where yeah, that yeah, came yeah. from. Well, maybe they do. Hey, Gary, such a pleasure. I hope you come back and see us again. Oh, I'd love to. Thanks for inviting me. My guest today is Pomona College professor Gary Smith. The book is The AI Delusion. It's published by Oxford University Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, a look across the biotechnology industry and its largest sector, biopharmaceuticals. Joining me today is Jim Greenwood, former U.S. congressman from Pennsylvania and today the president and CEO of BIO, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. BIO serves the biotech industry globally with headquarters in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Tech Nation. It's good to see you. Well, thank you. It's always my pleasure. Now, one thing that I, I... seldom remember to do is to take a look at the biotech industry as a whole. It's a global industry. It's a huge industry. And can you give us sort of a view of how big the biotech industry is? Oh, sure. And, well, uh, and what I mean, it does for people. Well, it's, it's complete. Every continent in the world, maybe with the exception of Antarctica, is engaged, engaged in, <laughs> we have thousands of scientists involved in biotechnology. And then let's start with what is biotechnology? It's understanding biology, understanding life at very profound levels, at the cellular level, at the genetic level, at the molecular level, and which is where all of the intelligence in the planet is in the, our DNA. And taking that knowledge and doing things that are beneficial to people, like treating diseases, like curing curing diseases, like making farmers more productive, like making more sustainable um, fuels and materials, like being prepared with countermeasures against bioterror, like being prepared for a pandemic. So the applications of biotechnology are really without limit. We spent a lot of years talking to people about what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Things are now happening. Oh, yeah. Things have changed a lot in the last few years. Yeah, yeah. So we have hundreds of of bio products, medications that are on the market now, thousands that are in the pipeline. Um, But when you want to talk about things that are really quite miraculous that are now, uh, Jimmy Carter was was, uh, diagnosed with brain (laughs) cancer. He takes a Merck product and he's... Cured, right? Cured. Um, hepatitis C was an incurable disease. There was a medication that was so lousy, the side effects were so awful that mo- very few people even adhered, and it didn't cure the disease. Now we have two or three products on the market. You take it one pill a day for about 12 weeks, and your hepatitis C is cured. You will not spend 
years in the hospital bed. You will not get a liver transplant. Um, you will not reinfect someone else. That's a cure. There's a little boy who was treated. Uh, uh, he's not the only one, but there's a company called Spark in Philadelphia. And there are, there are a series of genetic mutations that affect vision and create blindness. And uh, this little boy was the, one of the early um, uh, recipients of this medication. They uh, injected into the back of his eye cells that had the correct gene in them. And guess what? He can see. So, yeah, the miracles are out there already and many, many more to come. I've also been talking to companies that uh, we know a great example is Fujifilm uh, Diasynth Biotechnologies. You know, we all know Fujifilm. Fuji you know, well, they're not making a lot of film right. anymore. Right. Still no, make some film, but not a lot of film with right. digital cameras. Right. Um, one of the things they've done is decided that we're going to become a health company. We're going to be doing a lot of these things. And they're getting revved up. They've built a, 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 a manufacturing plant, a cell manufacturing plant in College Station, Texas. And they're saying, look, it, we have to be ready for the future. These personalized gene therapies, you know, somebody has to develop them. Each one of them is like manufacturing a whole drug. Right. And we're getting ready for that. What is... Can you give us a perspective on readiness, future readiness that we're seeing in the industry that we might not suspect is right. there? So <clears throat> you think about getting ready for the, for the new uh, technology. Some of it's policy. Policy, okay. So what, am I, what, what do I mean by that? If you have a once-and-done cure, right, and somebody is, was going to die or somebody was going to be sick or disabled their entire life, and they go into the hospital and they are injected with something and they're cured forever. Um, what's the value of that? The value of that might be a million dollars. Well, do you pay that all at once? Uh, or do you pay for that over time? Or do you pay for that as long as it works? And when it stops working, you stop paying. Um, these are questions that companies are dealing with right now. And in some cases, it's going to take acts of Congress to make it feasible to have these kinds of, of arrangements. So, you know, that's something that has to be anticipated. The FDA, tomorrow I'm going to be interviewing Scott Gottlieb, our FDA commissioner. The FDA has to be prepared for these new technologies. What does that mean? That means they have to be able to hire scientists and doctors and others who were willing to work for government pay in a government facility and be up to speed on all of this, these, this science. Because if you bring in, if a company does a clinical trial and brings in a truckload of data about, about what it did with patients, if you don't have scientists in there who understand it uh, and can make a decision as to whether to approve the drug or not, then it's, we're in trouble. What do you think of the new right to try? Ah, so... Um, Anybody who has a sick loved one or is sick themselves with something, particularly if it's fatal, um, will grasp at straws. And when they hear that perhaps there's a drug that's in clinical trial and they don't qualify for the clinical trial or the clinical trial is full, they want that drug for their kids, for themselves, for their loved ones. Uh, completely understandable. Now, we have a thing called compassionate use. And for a very long time, what happens is when a doctor uh, tells a patient there's a clinical trial, um, but we can't get you in it, I'll call the company and ask if they'll make a, a supply some of the drug. In most cases, they do if they can. 
and then we'll call the FDA. And in 99% of the cases, the FDA says, yes, you can do that. That's okay. Um, there really became, uh, I think, a false notion that somehow the FDA was not allowing people uh, they, they were blocking access to these drugs, and it really isn't isn't the case. Now, some companies, have been, and there have been terribly difficult situations, some companies just can't produce enough drug for everyone who wants it. And what they want to do is they want to get their clinical trials done, get their data to the FDA, get approval, and then everybody can have it. But, you know, it's a it's a excruciating, almost solemnic decision to say, do I slow down by opening up this, this, the trial to more people and producing more drug for this trials? Do I slow down the ultimate approval of the drug um, to save this life when maybe because I slowed down, we lost a thousand lives? And that's really difficult. So the, the right to try legislation cuts the FDA out of the process which in my mind, it was not blocking to begin with. And I'm, I'm worried that it will create false expectations. And there are a lot of unanswered questions like, um, suppose you take the drug and it, uh, somebody who was going to die anyway dies, right? And then the, uh, the, does that sort of count against the drug? Does that slow the uh, uh, ability to approve the drug? Um, if the drug uh, makes a patient sick, Will the insurance company pay for the hospitalization for that for that that person? So there there are as many unanswered questions about this as possible. But what 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 I think is unfortunate is people will think they now I can get the drug absolutely without question. Well, not if the company can't supply it, right? Um, and and we don't want people um, spending a lot of money creating new false hope, hopes and expectations up when, in fact, they're not going to benefit from the drug at all. Not to mention many of these drugs have genetic profiles or other qualifiers that they're meant for very specific sectors of, of patients. It's not the same thing. It's going to take a lot of energy to match up even to test. Right. And then you have the Laetrile problem, right? Remember Laetrile made from apricot pits or something was supposed to cure cancer? So what's to stop companies now that don't have to go to the FDA to make claims that they have these snake oil and patients who are desperate trying to, or parents who are desperate trying to get a hold of these these quote-unquote medicines and give them to their loved ones that might have no effect whatsoever or might make them sick or die. It's, it's so, so difficult. I mean, we're talking science here. That's not easy. No. <laughs> and, and on the face of it, it just, yeah, right to try. I can, it, I can take the downsides. It's not the downsides it's the, that are apparent here. It's not whether, oh, I won't sue anyone or uh, I just want to try. It's like we're not here in the business of trying. One thing I wanted to – before you go, if I, if I could, um, there are a lot of jobs in the biotech industry. They're not all science. No, Some no, of them are science, no. but a lot of them are not science. They're all kinds of jobs. Give us a profile of the kinds of jobs that are available and where they are available in the United mm -hmm. States. So you're quite right about that. Um, there are tons of jobs that are science. You know, that you have PhDs in microbiology doing and so forth. But you have, especially when you're in the manufacturing side of things, you have people who have to run the manufacturing facility. And they're, they're technicians. And they're also technicians who are involved in the in – the, 
um, the general operations of a manufacturing facility. And of course, there are clerical jobs or all kind of jobs. So um, this is one place where the United States leads the world. 57% of all of the drugs innovated in the world in a given year are innovated here. Um, thousands and thousands of jobs, most of them very good paying. And where are they? Well, they're certainly in Boston, um, the biggest hub. They're certainly in San Francisco. They're certainly in San Diego. They're in the research trial in North Carolina, but they're in Philadelphia. They're in New Jersey. They're in almost every state in the union. And every country in the world is trying to get into the life sciences and the biotechnology world because it's, it's the future. So it is a great opportunity for job growth, clean jobs, well-paying jobs, and jobs that are really, you know, intellectual jobs as opposed to, you know, rote manufacturing, stamping something out all day. There's legal jobs. There are accounting jobs. Every every company needs finance. That's, That's right. Exactly right. Uh, they're all the typical jobs. If you want to get into biotech, how do you find out what might be available to you? Well, there are various job boards around, um, and there are employment agencies that know about this stuff. Um, uh, there are all kinds of ways that you can you can find these these jobs, and um, it, they're not really hard to find. I have to say, I did have a student who worked just under the CFO of a biotech firm. I he had to keep coming back. It took him four weeks to figure out what the company did. Ah. <laughs> was like, you can learn what the company did later. We need your skills right now. We'll exactly. figure it out. Exactly. Don't you worry about that. Jim, always a pleasure. Hope you come back. See us Thank again. Thank you. Always my pleasure. Good talking with you. Jim Greenwood is the president and CEO of BIO, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. More information, including the Biotech Now blog, the Biotech Jobs Insight Report, and the Bio Patient and Health Advocacy Summit, all available at bio.org. For Technation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.